You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Preschoolers using computers now and logging on to Zoom calls and accessing their remote schoolwork through Google Homework. And there's just so many opportunities for them to be online and have these different accounts. So how do we make that secure for them? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Sarah Teer. She's the Minister of Magic at 1Password. Great title. Yeah, I love it. I love that title. (laughs) And we're going to be discussing the things that people don't often think about when it comes to their passwords, and that's including them in their final arrangements. It's actually uh, interesting stuff. All right, Joe, uh, we've got some good stories to share this week, but uh, before we get to that, we've got some follow-up here. So we heard from a listener named Jonathan who wrote in and said, back on December 16th, you were talking about a software update and network device replacement. If you can't update devices on your network, replace them. Right. Uh, Dave questioned whether you should have a regular replacement program for equipment. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan asks, how much does this apply to one's phone before the <laughs> holidays? I was encouraging a friend who works as a contractor to an unnamed government agency to trade in his inexpensive Android phone. Not sure what the opposite of a flagship phone is called, but this was it. <laughs> That's great. Right. I, I would say commodity phone. <laughs> there you go. Right. Right. <laughs> Disposable. Yes. Uh, his last software update was sometime in 2019. He had owned this phone for just a little more than a year and had gotten this because he had to quickly replace another broken, inexpensive Android phone that he'd had for over three years. I urged him to purchase a new phone, one that would receive software updates for a good period of time. If not an iPhone, then maybe one from Google or Samsung. Uh-huh. Since phones are such an integral part of our lives, wouldn't you say this is an important place to make sure you have technology that's getting security updates? What would you say to someone who doesn't want to spend much on a phone? Are there inexpensive Android phones that get updates for greater than three years? He says, I'll take my answer on the air. <laughs> right. Yes. What do you think about Actually, this, Joe? This is a great point. And I think you and I have talked about this probably on the CyberWire podcast. Yeah. Where it is absolutely imperative that you replace your phone. And, and Apple and Google, both with their flagship phones, will do something called end of lifing the phone. Right. Mm-hmm. And they do that because phones can become a configuration management nightmare if you have way too many of them. Jonathan asks here about uh, going with someone like Google, Apple, or Samsung. I would recommend staying away from Samsung. Samsung doesn't have a good history of patching vulnerabilities quickly. And one of the reasons that they don't have that history is because they have that configuration management nightmare. Not only mm. do they have you know so many different models of phones that they continue to quote support. But they also have different models for each different wireless carrier out there. So they'll they'll get in bed with the wireless carriers, and the phone for uh, Verizon will have different software than the uh, phone for T-Mobile or AT&T. Mm. That's a problem. Apple and Google don't do that. They say, this is our phone. Take it or leave it. And all of the wireless carriers go, okay, we'll take it. Right. <laughs> right, um, right, because they really right. don't have a choice because so many people use both these phones. I have a Pixel 3. But to answer Jonathan's question about an affordable phone that is good for updates, you have a couple of options. Apple has a lower end uh, phone that they sell, but it's still kind of expensive. Google has the same thing with their Pixel products. In fact, my mom just was 
talking to me about getting a new phone and I recommended she go with, or she and I have reached the conclusion that she's going to get the Google Pixel 4a, which is like 350 bucks right now. But there's also the Android One program, which when you buy an Android One phone, you're guaranteed to get software updates for, I think, at least two years, possibly Mm. more. If they can't meet that guarantee, they won't sell the phone anymore. That's part of the Mm. agreement of being part of the Android One program. And some of these phones are as cheap as 250 bucks. Mm. There are still phones out there that are like $60. Don't buy those. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's another interesting point here, which is that, you know, there's that old saying, that old chestnut of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that does not apply to computing devices anymore because there are new vulnerabilities that affect old devices that are discovered over time. They are broke is the issue, right? It's it's not, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it, that doesn't mean that if it works, don't fix it because there is a problem with that phone and it is broken but uh, you won't even know that it's broken. That's the worst kind of break, right? Is the failure you don't know about. And this is a security failure here. If you can't get it updated, you're walking around with a almost a perpetually vulnerable device in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And think mm-hmm. of the information we keep on our phones now. You know, many people keep banking information on there. I, you know, I don't, but a lot of people do. I just think that you need to have, I think Jonathan's right here. You need to get a phone that gets updates regularly uh, and will get them for some time in the future. I say, look at Apple, look at Google and look at the Android One program. Yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of short-sighted. The money you save on a cheap phone is probably not worth the potential money that you could lose by not having the security Uh, elements that some of the more expensive phones would have and the ongoing updates and support that come with a more expensive device that is more closer to the folks who actually make the operating system than a a phone, a cheapo phone that's just licensing some version of of Android or another operating system. I don't even think you need to license Android. It's open source. Yeah. Yeah. So So anybody can put it on a phone. I think it's uh, I think it's money well spent. I, I wouldn't look at it as an expense. I look at it as an investment in security. Doesn't mean you need to go you know crazy and and get the most expensive phone out there. But there are Android One phones available for two hundred fifty bucks. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Jonathan for uh, your kind note. That uh, is a good topic, and I'm glad we got to address it here. Joe, let's uh, move on to our stories. What do you have for us this week? Dave, this week I have an interesting story that comes from Adam Wiedemann over at Google's Threat Analysis Group. Over the past couple of months, Google has identified an ongoing campaign targeting security researchers who work on vulnerability research and exploit development. This has been going on at a number of different companies. The actors behind these campaigns have employed a number of different uh, means to target researchers, and to make themselves seem more legitimate, they have set up a research blog that has write-ups and analysis of vulnerabilities that have already been disclosed, right? Mm. They also have uh, guest posts from unwitting legitimate security researchers. So essentially, this is just a bunch of plagiarized material that they've put out on this blog. We're going to come back to this blog later, so remember the blog. But they've also set up multiple Twitter accounts, and they use that to post links to the blog to amplify and retweet posts from other fake accounts, right? So they've got this big network of fake Twitter accounts, And one of them will say, hey, look at this blog entry. And then 20 other ones go, hey, that's a great blog entry. That's how Twitter amplification works. And that's how it's exploited. They're posting videos of their claimed exploits. And at least one case of these videos, the actors fake the video, right? And they they posted a link uh, to a YouTube video. And of course, because YouTube is such a nice, polite place, everybody immediately said, hey, this is fake. And they had no problem disclosing it. But yes, it turns out the video is fake. It's just an edited video to look like it's showing an exploit and it's really not showing that at all. But another Twitter account in their network would then retweet the original tweet going, oh, by the way, this is not a fake video. So very convincing, right? I mean, that's... Hmm. 
this is all just the setup. This is all how they just lure in these security researchers. Once they have the attention of a security researcher, they would say, hey, do you want to collaborate on some vulnerability research? And if the researcher said yes, they'd say, hey, great, I've got this one I'm working on here. It's a, uh, here's a Visual Studio project. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with what Visual Studio is, this is a Microsoft development tool. It's how you write software for Windows. You use Visual Studio. There are other tools you can use, but by and large, everybody uses Visual Studio because that's the Microsoft tool. Uh, you can get free versions of it and uh, all the way up to versions that cost a lot of money every year to use. But anybody can get it. When you have this tool that generates software for the operating system, that can be a complex process. So there's a lot of other files that are involved with a Visual Studio project, but the only project files that people pay attention to are the source code that some of the developers have written. There's a bunch of files behind the scenes that control like the build cycle, which is how the software is turned from source code into machine language or maybe into uh, something called missile, which is what the .NET framework uses. People generally don't look at that, and these actors are exploiting that because the Visual Studio project contains a DLL, which you can use Visual Studio to build DLLs, so it's not, un not unexpected to have DLLs in this project file. But there's something called a build event, which is part of the scripting in, in running a build. Every time you click that, that build button in Visual Studio, it builds and runs these events. But this ev one of these events fires up this DLL, and it turns out that DLL is malicious, and it just starts pinging out to command and control servers and essentially has a backdoor that lets people gain access to the computer's of security researchers who research vulnerabilities. Hmm. I cannot imagine a, a worse situation for a malicious actor to have access to a bona fide security researcher's research. Uh, right. Someone who researches vulnerabilities. In fact, you know what? I'm really amazed it's taken this long for us to have a story about this as I read this. I'm like, why has nobody ever thought of this before? This is who malicious actors should be targeting. Right. <laughs> well, this is a, this is the first time we've found out about it. Exactly. No, you're you're 100 correct. <laughs> it's just the first time we know. Google also observed several cases where researchers were compromised after visiting the blog. The researchers followed a link on Twitter to a write-up posted on the blog, and shortly thereafter, a malicious service was installed on the researcher's system that opened up an in-memory backdoor that did the same thing: talk to the command and control servers. Now, here's the interesting part. At the time of these visits, the victim's systems were running fully patched and up-to-date Windows 10 and Chrome browser versions. So these guys are installing this, this drive-by download on fully patched systems. So they've got some zero-day that they're exploiting here, it looks like. Mm -hmm. And people don't burn zero-days. They don't use zero-days uh, you know, willy-nilly. They, right. they, you're right, exactly, because they're, they're extraordinarily valuable. Yep. Well, I think this might be a valid payoff for those things. Right. Mm -hmm. if, if I can get access to 20 or 30 security researchers who are really good at what they do, then, hey, I might find another five or 10 zero days. This might be something that actually pays dividends in its own currency. Right. I'm going right. to spend one zero day and I'm going to get five or 10 more zero days. Yeah. And they're really targeting people here. And, and I mean, what, this is a perfect example of social engineering of yep. uh, Looking, g gaining someone's trust, asking them to collaborate, mm -hmm. stroking their ego, you know, saying, hey, you're, you're a, a person I'd like to work with. Your, your reputation is so good. I'd like to your help with this. Uh, and away they go. 
Yeah. And uh, Google uh, on their blog pointed out that they're unable to confirm the mechanism for the compromise uh, on these fully patched machines, but they really, really, really want to know if anybody has any ideas. <laughs> and they remind everybody about their, their bounty program, their bug bounty program. I bet program. they do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet Microsoft wow. is also very interested because it could be a Microsoft vulnerability. We don't know where mm-hmm. the vulnerability is lying. It might not be any vulnerability. We'd like to know what the mechanism they're using to get this thing on there is. Yeah. What are the recommendations here, Joe? This article has some recommendations. I don't know how plausible they are. They say, if you're concerned about being targeted, we recommend that you compartmentalize your research activities using a separate physical or virtual machine for your general web browsing. Interacting with others in the research community, accepting files from third parties, and your own security research. So they're saying that now you need to have two computers for doing this, right? Or at least a virtual machine for for running your your vulnerable systems. Uh, Mm -hmm. Running a uh, virtual machine is something that a lot of security researchers probably already do. Uh, In fact, I know they already do it. That's all well and good, but I don't know that you can do it on a separate physical machine. A lot of these folks are just going to have one laptop to go out and and, and do this on. And it's it's physically difficult to go, okay, well, now I have to change modes. I'm going to have to go over to this computer. I don't know that that's a good recommendation. I mean, if I'm a security researcher, I'm not collaborating with somebody I haven't met in person uh, and spoken to. That's that's my opinion. I saw a response to this when this news initially broke and we were covering it over on the CyberWire. I saw over on Twitter several security researchers say that they had been contacted by these people. And some of them said that they were running virtual machines and so that protected them from it. Some of them said, you know, they only went so far with it and they started to sense that something wasn't right. And so Mm -hmm. they they cut off the communication. But right. It was fairly, you know, it was broad enough that I saw several people say, oh, yeah, yeah, they they reached out to us. And right. uh, so it seems like it was a pretty extensive uh, effort here on, on these bad guys' uh, part. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, interesting story for sure. My story this week, uh, it's a little timely. Uh, as we record this, it's not quite Valentine's Day. And when this show publishes, it will have just been Valentine's Day. So, uh I'm sure Lisa will be uh, very pleased with whatever it is that you gave her for Valentine's and the, the showering of gifts and affection that you provided her with, right? Uh, yeah, I, I just got her a nice pair of earrings. There you go. And she got me a, a really nice coffee mug. Um, so. they, say, they say romance is dead, right? Right. <laughs> so this story comes from the folks over at Threat Post. Uh, this is written by Lindsay O'Donnell. And it's titled Pre-Valentine's Day Malware Attack Mimics Flower and Lingerie Stores. Uh-huh. So, you know, these uh, malware attacks, these phishing attempts, they track the calendar. Mm-hmm. And Valentine's Day is uh, certainly one that they target. Uh, people are always looking for love. Uh, and also, it's not a day without a little bit of anxiety, trying to make sure that you got the right thing or that, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're hoping to win someone's affection or yep. uh, the, the things that you got for your loved one are going to be appreciated. The folks here at ThreatPost are reporting on some emails that went out and they were uh, confirming uh, orders from a lingerie shop and it's called Azure Lingerie. Is that right, Joe? I think that's French, right? Uh Azure, yeah, A-J-O-R. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I'm not, Uh, I don't speak French. That's French, yeah. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's never slowed me down, though. So um, also a flower store called Rose World, and both of these were spreading a malware loader that's called Baza Loader. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this uh, I'm going to talk about this one from the lingerie store. What you would get is a PDF that uh, was not malicious itself. It's just a PDF for an invoice, and it would be a pretty pricey PDF, you know, hundreds of dollars. Yeah, the one I'm looking uh, at says $410. That's a lot of lingerie. That's right. <laughs> so uh, somebody's looking to uh, impress someone, right? Right. Um, so that would get your attention, especially, obviously, which in this case, you did not spend $410 on lingerie. No, no. I, um, I bought some uh, some nice earrings. Well, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> so when you click through on the website, uh, that there's a link to this Azure pretending to be Azure. Of course, it's not the real Azure. Azure is a legitimate company. They're a okay. high-end lingerie shop out of New York. So these folks are pretending to be them. If you click through, you will go to a website that looks like the actual website for Azure lingerie. Probably just a direct copy of it. A direct copy of it. Looks like they went and they scraped mm-hmm. uh, the information right from it so it looks like the real thing. They got themselves a lookalike domain name. It's They, they bought AjourLingerie.net, uh, and the actual Azure Lingerie website is Azure.com. Okay. So you could see someone falling for that. AjourLingerie.net seems plausible. Yeah, that right? is more than plausible. Yeah. So then when you go to the website, there's a contact page. If you go there, you have the option to enter your order number and your order ID. So imagine you're trying to track down what is this invoice all about? Am I on the hook for this? Did someone buy something? Is someone trying to steal money from me? What's going on? Right. And that contact page redirects them to a landing page, which then links to, wait for it, an Excel spreadsheet. Ah. <laughs> and the Excel spreadsheet contains also, wait for it, macros. Ah, that's, um, I, I was going to guess macros. <laughs> right. wait, wait, are they malicious? They are malicious. <laughs> ah. And it's the macros that if you enable your macros, and folks, don't, don't enable do your macros. macros. Don't do that. <laughs> so, I, there's so few reasons to have. If you have a work reason for enabling your macros, great, more power to you. But you know, just... And everybody else, turn off your macros. The macros are nothing but trouble. Um, (laughs) So uh, if you have your macros enabled, it'll download the Baza loader, which uh, is a a malware loader, and Bob's your uncle. Now now they've got you. Yeah, we're using uh, Valentine's Day uh, to trick people into this. Uh, Also, the specter of having an unpaid bill, a hefty bill for something that you did not order. This is hitting all the buttons, Dave. Right. Step by step, it it looks legit as you go through this. Yeah. But it's not. It's a a well-crafted campaign. And we've been talking about this now. I I know that I've been focusing on it for the past two or three months about the uh, malicious actors going through the calendar and, and aligning themselves up. What, whatever's coming up next, Valentine's Day is no exception to this rule. It represents a great opportunity for these malicious actors to do exactly what they're doing here in this story. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good reminder. There's another uh, story they cover in here. If you're interested, uh, we're talking about a flower shop. Same sort of thing. Downloads the same uh, Baza loader downloader. So it's an article worth checking out, again, written by Lindsay O'Donnell over on Threat Post. Uh, do check it out. It's a good one to share with your friends and family because this is the sort of thing that makes its way around. With all the holidays, you'll see them you know, using the holidays as an excuse to spread these sorts of things around. So Absolutely. Check it out. All right. Well, those are our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Christian. 
and it is a legitimate deal, Dave. And <laughs> of course it is. That's the title of the email. So why don't you read it? It's pretty good. All right. It goes like this. Legitimate deal. Good day. I'm Aisha Gaddafi, daughter of late Colonel Gaddafi, the Libyan leader. I'm contacting you to assist me in removing the sum of 65 million USA dollars being deposited with a security company in UAE, Dubai. The funds was deposited with a security company in my name. As a matter of fact, me, my only surviving son, managed to escape with the help of a security guard on duty that fateful day. I'm presently into hiding in a refugee camp between the border of Chad and Nigeria because I know that the regime of my father has collapsed after his death. Please, for your kind assistance, I will offer you 30% of the total sum. All the legal documentation concerning the deposit are with me. I will issue power of attorney, making you the new beneficiary of the deposit so that the security company can release the funds to you. Once you successfully secure the funds from the security company, an arrangement would be made for disbursement. May Allah grant you the heart to assist me and my only son in this our trial period. Please never you abandon me with my son, because just we are Arabs, but I want to assure you that honesty and trust must remain our bond. Get back with your details so that we can proceed without delay, because I am here without help from no one. Regards, Aisha Gaddafi. Hmm. Interestingly enough, uh, Muammar Gaddafi did have a daughter named Aisha, but it's not spelled really? like it's in this uh, email. Huh. It's spelled differently. Huh. So somebody did a minimal amount of, uh, <laughs> of research. <laughs> right. right. He, he reached over to the guy in the next cubicle. He said, hey, Bob, what was the name of Gaddafi's daughter? <laughs> Aisha. I think it was Aisha. All right, <laughs> right. good enough. <laughs> but it's spelled here like Aisha Tyler, you know? Right, right. Uh, Who's an American yeah. actress? <laughs> and not oh like my. Uh, Aisha Gaddafi, who is a, uh, a Libyan daughter of Muammar Gaddafi. I guess I don't. Right. I think that's a great story. <laughs> I could I could see that exact that exactly happening. Oh, yeah. what was what was Gaddafi's daughter? Aisha. Okay. Yes. Good. Good. Yeah. All right. Good. Enough. I don't think it matters how I spell it. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're pretty straightforward here. What's going on? Right. Yeah. This is just a uh, uh, very similar. In fact, it's the exact same scam as the uh, Nigerian prince scam. You might be able to call this the Libyan princess scam. Um, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. It's yeah. uh, it's the same the same scam. And if you if you respond to this, they're going to start talking about. Oh, now we're going to start moving the money. Oh, by the way, we need some fees. Uh, mm -hmm. Why don't you send me the money for the fees, and I'll get the money moved over. Which always perplexes me. I mean, how does somebody have millions of dollars and can't pay the fees? No, because they're in prison. This person's in a refugee in, in camp, a refugee Joe. Camp. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, well, that you know, makes so. sense, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, that's a good one. Our, our thanks to our listener, uh, Christian, for uh, providing that for us. That is our catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Teer. Uh, she has the greatest title in uh, security. She's the Minister of Magic at 1Password. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we're, we're talking about a, an important topic, which is uh, something that a lot of folks don't consider, which is what happens if uh, something bad happens to you, if you pass away or something you know like that, you're unable, you're unresponsive, uh, who gets custody of your digital things? Who gets your passwords? Who gets all that stuff? Right. Here's my conversation with Sarah Tier. We were trying to figure out how 
families in general are using passwords. Um, the world, as we know, has really changed in the last while. And what role does having uh, passwords play with estate planning, with having kids at home, with remote work? And all of a sudden now, instead of having work machines and home machines, having everything all sort of combined and what kind of information we could gather from people in terms of how that's all working together. Well, let's dig into estate planning itself. I mean, th- this part of, of it fascinates me because I think it's it may be something that um, a lot of folks don't really put a lot of thought into. I think it's, it was very surprising to me when we looked at the statistics where only 38% of Americans had a will to begin with, and fewer of half of people, half of all those people had passwords within their will, which one of the things when you're using one password we prompt you for is to download your emergency kit and write your master password right on there and include it with your will so that if something happens down the road, uh, your family has access to that information because a lot of our living is now online. So it's very hard to think that all of a sudden, and if something were to happen to you, what happens to those online accounts and trying to, to get access to those can be quite challenging. You know, it's interesting because I, I think of my own parents who are uh, elderly and, you know, they they keep lots of things in their safe deposit box. And I, I wonder if uh, the generation coming up is even very familiar with what a safe deposit box is. I actually don't think they are. I know for uh, for myself personally, um, with our bank account, we got a free safe deposit box with it. Um, never put anything in it. I'm not even sure where the key to the safe deposit box is. But at the same time, I know that I'm going to have to have um, my will. So I've got that together and I've got important information with that. But I don't think a lot of the newer generation is even going to think of going into a physical bank, let alone having a security deposit box at a physical bank. So what are the ramifications here? I mean, if if someone in modern society, someone passes away and if they've not left a, a proper trail behind when it comes to their passwords, what is their family probably in for? A lot of difficulty, unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately, as you start doing all of the estate planning and um, dealing with the actual funeral arrangements, things like that, you've also got uh, bill collectors, you've got hydro bills, you've got cell phone bills, you've got all of those things mounting up. And when you can't access those accounts to cancel services or access any of that information, it, it becomes very difficult for people. And it just adds to that stress that they're already dealing with. So what are your recommendations here? I mean, obviously, uh, Joe and I on this show, we, we try to convince people to use password managers all the time. And of course, you, you all are on board with that. But I mean, beyond that, let's say someone's using a password. What's the proper way to, to prep it uh, in case something like this happens? I think if someone is particularly resistant to using a password manager or just trying to keep things simple, as I often find um, a lot of older adults will tell me they find it complicated, I think making sure that those key passwords for anything are written down and and Mm. kept somewhere secure and safe so that people have somewhere for that. Because not necessarily even if something were to happen to you where you were to no longer be with us, but unfortunately, as we've seen with COVID, um, people can go into hospitals for long extended amounts of time. It could just be a matter of you're not able to look after your own affairs for a couple of months while you're getting better, making sure someone has access to that information for you. My husband, David, and I were talking and said, you know, if there's someone that you would give a key to your house to go in and water your plants and check on things and all that kind of stuff, that's someone that you'd want to be able to give a key to your account so that they could make sure everything's taken care of for you. What about, you know, multi-factor authentication? You know, I'm thinking that obviously it's something we encourage folks to do, but 
you know, in this case, I could imagine, as you say, you know, giving a neighbor the password to my account, but they could be thwarted by multi-factor. Again, that's definitely going to be a long-term consideration. And I think that that's where the password managers, things like that, that comes into such a big help because especially as you've made things more secure um, for yourself and making sure, you know, you're not becoming victim to hacking or identity theft or anything like that, you've just made it that much harder as well to gain access should something happen to you. So following up and making sure that complete record keeping and the whole estate planning is all a big part of the bigger picture is really important. The start of a new year is always a great time to look at those sort of resolutions and say, you know, what sort of things can we do? And the new year sort of lends into the spring cleaning. And and it's one of those things where it's nice to just sit back and look at things and say, okay, how does this all fit together? What's the bigger picture? How can I make sure that something is happening and um, if something does happen, how do I make sure that people have access to what they need? What are some of the other key things that came out of this family password report? These days, how are families handling their, their password uh, ecosystem? One of the things that really made me laugh was just that 30% of parents had said they have, uh, with high schoolers, they claim that they know all of their children's passwords. And I thought, um, <laughs> as a parent of a high schooler, <laughs> I, I, am, I, I don't even know the pin code to her phone anymore because that's right. you know, top That's secret. adorable. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought there's, there's no way. <laughs> There's no yeah. way, you, you know, and I guarantee you 100% of those 30% of parents think those are the only accounts those kids have because it's a remarkable thing. But I think just even looking at the younger generation in terms of how many kids are now online schooling, what that remote environment looks like, trying to teach kids how to set passwords up so that they're not in the name of your pet dog. They're not um, the street you live on. How do you set up passwords in a way that they're safe, but they're also memorable and so that it's easy for the kids to use because you've got preschoolers using computers now and logging on to Zoom calls and accessing their remote schoolwork through Google Homework. And there's just so many opportunities for them to be online and have these different accounts. So how do we make that secure for them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a really good point that, you know, just as the same way that we, we teach our youngsters about basic hygiene, that, uh, you know, that digital hygiene is something that's going to be important and serve them well throughout their lives as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just in terms of just overall uh, being aware of uh, being a good netizen, the old, uh, that makes me sound really old when I say that, oh my, <laughs> um, you know, a, a good citizen on the internet and that whole password hide, but like, you know, accepting friend requests from people you don't know and just keeping yourself safe online. And I think that's discussions that parents need to be willing to have with kids, especially since they're online um, so much. I think the other part is just, it's more it's more readily accessible now to all kids. Like it used to be where you'd have a phone and you'd let your kids borrow it from time to time, or they'd have an hour where they'd borrow the, the family iPad to watch a show or things like that. And now with, you know, parents are working from home, they've got their computer, their kids have their computer. There's just a, a more number of devices. So it's, it's more about managing how it all works together and making sure that everyone can have access to what they need um, and that people are doing it properly. Because again, last thing, we've got two kids. So if both kids have the same password to the same account, then, you know, this one's in that one's mess and this one's in that one's and it, it ends up being a real mess. And you want to make sure that your kids are all being safe online, but also not, you know, driving each other crazy for the sake of driving each other crazy. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those those modern parenting challenges of, of balancing between respecting their privacy, but also, you know, keeping looking over their shoulder and, and uh, you know, having a, a, an appropriate amount of uh, 
parental care over what they're doing day to day. Mm -hmm. I think that was actually one of the things when we were setting up our family account that was important to uh, my daughter in particular. She's 15 now. So um, when we set that up was just her being able to have the knowledge that her private vault was her private vault. And yes, as administrators, we could help her recover her vault if something, if she forgot her master password or if she needed help, you know, we could help her, but we wouldn't have access to those passwords because I think that's, you want to have that autonomy, that privacy. Um, and then on the opposite end, we've got my in-laws where we're setting them up and, you know, ha having to make sure where are things at and then trying to encourage them to put things in a shared vault with um, myself and my husband and then them as opposed to using the private vault so that we can help manage things as things um, progress as they get older um, and making sure that you know we can all access what we need to at the right time. I think the most important thing I can share is just uh, the reminder to people to talk to their loved ones. Estate planning is never a fun topic to talk about. You know, it's it's not filled with good thoughts and happy memories, but um, find those opportunities, whether you're watching TV shows, whether you're watching the news. If you're near your parents, talk to them about it, find out what their wishes are, talk to your kids about it, and make it more of an open family discussion by sort of demystifying the whole process of passing away and how that all works. I think it really works better for the entire family to sort of make those plans together and be aware of what everyone wants to do. And then as a, and an adult, making sure that you've got everything put together and, you know, complete that package, make sure you have a will, make sure you put important information with that will so that if something were to happen, people can take care of it. All right, Joe, what do you think? Good interview. I'll tell you, Dave, it's a tough topic for people to deal with. And I think that's why only a third of us have wills. My father was a CPA. He's since retired, but uh, he did a lot of work with people doing some estate planning and other things. One of the things he said to me was, you know, everybody has a will <laughs> by default. It's just the probate system, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea of having a will is so that when you go into the probate system, that part happens quickly and it happens as you prescribe. Right. Because if you don't have that documentation, then it's up to the judge and trustees and other and other people to make those decisions for you after your untimely or timely death, right? Right. It's a great idea to have this written out in some way, shape, or form. I will say that I have not left my passwords for my survivors, but I've made other arrangements for them to get access to the things that are important for them to get access to. Mm -hmm. You know, things like financial assets, they can get access to it. They just can't log on directly to the website. They'd have to actually go in person and, you know, handle things. And that's not too much of a too much of a burden, I don't think. Yeah. Sarah recommends writing these passwords down. And initially, as security practitioners, we always, you know, the hair in the back of our neck stands up and we go, don't write your passwords down. <laughs> right. It's all about gauging the risk and mitigating it. Right. If, if you're wanting somebody to have access to your digital assets after you pass, then there is no better way than to put it on a piece of paper and make sure that that paper is secure somewhere. Mm -hmm. like in a safe deposit box. That's okay to do, uh, especially if they're strong passwords, right? The only problem right. is if you go through a password changing regimen, now you just have to go over and update the document that's in the uh, safe deposit box or that's secured somewhere. Yeah, you know, it's something that we deal, I, I deal with personally, you know, as my folks uh, get older, that uh, this is something we have to, you know, they're, 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 they're planning, estate planning for them. And right. um, they've done just this very thing. You know, there's a file that has all of their important passwords, and uh, I know where it is. It, it's secure. But if something were to happen to them, I know where to go. You, and, you could uh, get it. Right. I could get it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
one of the things that I liked about this interview is when she was talking about parents saying they know their kids' passwords. I guarantee you, you don't know all of your children's passwords. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when I was raising children, I think I knew one of my children's passwords when they were younger, like their email account. And then I never really knew another one. I'm a bigger fan of making your kids the kind of people who don't need that kind of monitoring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see their online behavior that they show you and you make sure that's all uh, up to date. You make sure they're not participating in any risky behaviors. You educate them about the risks, tell them the horror stories of things that have happened to people because there are plenty of them out there. I am a firm believer in not sheltering your kids from that information. You know, yeah. it's, um, you know, you say, hey, look, this kid got online with somebody they thought they were talking to another 14-year-old kid. Turned out they were talking to a 35-year-old man and now they're dead. Look at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a horror story and it happens, but it it is a risk when you're online. Sure. It's sobering uh, things to think about, but it is important. I would agree 100 percent. Good to check in. From your own point of view, my take on this is that you want to make things as easy as possible on the folks who are left behind if something was to happen to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to do that. This is a gift you can leave for your family that among all the things they're going to have to worry about at the time of your passing, this is one less thing they'll have to worry about. And so you can do a little bit of work ahead of time and and make things easier on them. And to me, that's probably time well spent. I would agree. All right. Well, our thanks to Sarah Tier from uh, 1Password for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. We thank all of you for listening to our show this week. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 